Hey, it's Jen. And before we jump in, I just want to mention that for some of these news topics today, the story is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear the podcast. For the latest on everything, keep up with your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White, and this is the News Roundup. Air raid sirens, secrecy, and speeches. As the world marks the first anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, President Joe Biden made sure that this week he was both heard and seen. The Americans stand with you, and the world stands with you. Back home, the far-right wing of the GOP spent the week bashing the president's surprise visit to Ukraine. They re-upped their calls to end military and financial aid, but others in the party seem determined to fight back. Don't worry about provoking Putin. Worry about beating him. That's where we start. Later, more on what's been promised to residents of East Palestine and who showed up there this week. Joining us in studio is Steve Clements, editor-at-large at Semaphore. Steve, welcome back. Great to be with you. It's also great to have in studio Cheryl Gay-Stolberg, Washington correspondent for The New York Times. Cheryl, it's great to have you. Great to be here. And also with us is Domenico Montanaro. He's NPR's senior political editor. Domenico, welcome back. Hey, glad to be here. So President Biden crossed into Kiev by train on Monday aboard what's been dubbed Rail Force One. The surprise trip lasted less than a day, but it sent a big message. It was the first time the president visited Ukraine since Russia's full-scale invasion of the country one year ago. Steve, how did Biden spend the 23 or so hours he was there? Well, I think he went uh, to to connect visibly, uh, if not secretly getting there with Uh, President Zelensky to communicate not only America's support for the struggle Ukrainians are going through, but also, you know, the collective West that's worried about an autocrat that wants to walk across a sovereign country and rewrite the borders of, you know, territory. You know, I had the privilege at the very end of uh, then Vice President Biden's term uh, to be on his plane and to travel with him on Air Force Two uh, to Kiev. His last two trips as officially were to Davos and to Kiev. And we went there for about the same amount of time, in fact, that he went on this trip. It was less than a day. And he checked in. He knows the place well. He he cares uh, significantly about Ukraine. And he uh, uh, went without any of us media knowing <laughs> and, yeah. and really pulled off, I think, quite an interesting coup um, uh, from, a, from a press perspective and also to, sh- to show uh, resolve. Well, the BBC's Ukraine correspondent James Waterhouse spoke to me earlier from Kiev. He says Biden's trip was seen locally as the ultimate act of solidarity. Despite all of the known risks, he decided to come. And when I saw them outside St. Michael's Cathedral, poignantly looking at a war memorial, I thought about what that street was like this time last year, where people were driving in a panicked fashion, trying to get out of the city. They were signing up to join the territorial defence. They're being issued with automatic rifles and nervously pointing them around. It was incredibly dark and incredibly dangerous. And here we had this kind of sunny winter's day and the presence of Joe Biden. And it, it was an undeniable moment. Cheryl, what message do you think Biden was hoping to send by visiting Ukraine, both to Americans and to allies overseas? I think the message was clearly that we are standing with Ukraine, that this war has gone on longer than anyone anticipated, but that Americans are not backing out. He came as presidents often do when they make a foreign trip, bearing a gift. He offered um 
more money for uh, for Ukraine, as you said, provoking somewhat of a backlash among Republicans. And I also think that um, this was a really good moment for Joe Biden. This was a very daring trip. Uh, I have also traveled with Joe Biden when he was vice president to Iraq. That trip was planned in great, great secrecy. This trip was even more dangerous than that because there were no U.S. forces controlling the airspace and controlling his ground movements. So I think it sent a message to Ukrainians that the American president was willing to take great risk to show his support uh, for their cause. And it sent a message to the American people that the president was going to stand firm. Well, after his visit to Ukraine, President Biden headed by train over the border to Poland. On Tuesday, he gave a speech at the Royal Castle Gardens in Warsaw. Let us move forward with faith and conviction and with an abiding commitment to be allies not of darkness, but of light, not of captivity, but yes, of freedom. May God bless you all. May God protect our troops. And may God bless the heroes of Ukraine. Thank you, Poland. Thank you, thank you, thank you for what you're doing. Now, unlike his visit to Ukraine, this stop in Poland was expected. Domenico, what did that speech say to you about where the war is today and where America stands on it? Well, I mean, the U.S. has spent over $24 billion since the beginning of the war. And, you know, President Biden is somebody who's been steeped in foreign policy for decades. And this is something he cares deeply about. And it clearly showed, you know, where he sees himself as a leader and wanting to be there to be able to say that the U.S. is standing up against the threat of Russia and stand up for democracies. And, you know, it is notable that Ukraine has said, look, give us the arms, give us the weapons. Uh, give us the funding and we will fight with uh, our soldiers. U.S. soldiers don't have to go in there. And yet, politically, when you come back and look at what's happening in this country, our poll this week, the NPR PBS NewsHour Maris poll, found that half of Republicans now say that they, are, that they think that the U.S. has spent too much on Ukraine. Two-thirds of people think, that, think the opposite, that it's enough or that, it's, that there needs to be more. But still, that's going to be a fight that is bubbling and brewing because that uh, opposition from Republicans has quadrupled in the past year. Well, Arizona Representative Andy Biggs is one of the loudest voices from the MAGA wing of the Republican Party. He spoke to Fox News earlier this week. Biggs wants future funding to Ukraine pulled and disagrees that it's America's job to defend the country's sovereign borders. We can't even protect our own border. And we're sending money and weapons over there. We've depleted our weapon arsenal. We're now importing actually ammunition, and then sending it over to Ukraine. How is that a win for the United States? So that's Representative Biggs and where he stands on U.S. involvement in Ukraine. But Steve, what about the rest of his party? Well, the party is split. I mean, there, there's it, basically it is it is correct what uh, uh, Domenico said. There's eroding support in the Republican Party uh, primarily, but also I should say in the Democratic Party for the priorities of Ukraine in our foreign policy spectrum and the costs it represents. People are scrambling to pay the bills. They see inflation. They look at some of the costs. And right now, it's better than it was, frankly, a few weeks ago. But it is still something that people ask why when I'm looking at education costs food costs, uh, job instability, et cetera, are we engaged in this faraway war uh, that we've now made the be all of that? And then on top of it, I think there are other issues we need to put on the table beyond what Andy Biggs did, which is, you know, sit there and look at what is, you know, most people look at China 
as America's, you know, most significant geostrategic challenge in the world. China right now sees Russia used to be its strategic rival. And on the day Biden was in uh, Kiev, uh, there, the, the head of foreign relations for the Chinese Central Committee uh, was hugging it out with Vladimir Putin in Moscow. So, you know, we have two of our largest players in the world now allied, essentially, uh, and the United States and Europe on the other side of that. So this has very huge long-term, perhaps generational implications, not only for Russians who've you know definitely taken a hit, but also for America. Well, and Cheryl, just explain the White House's argument for why it's important to maintain this support. I think the argument is very simple, which is that we can't lose. You know, this is a fight for democracy. And what's interesting to me is that this split among Republicans um, is really exposes how the Republican Party has moved away from what Republicans have always stood for, which is the defense of democracy around the world. President George W. Bush made that a key theme of his presidency. Now you're seeing uh, mainstream, so-called mainstream Republicans like Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, aligning with the Biden White House uh, in a defense of democracy. McConnell was at the um, Munich Security Conference last week. He was asked, uh, should we keep giving them aid, the Ukrainians aid, even if it seems to be a forever war. And he said, I think we ought to be giving them what they need to win the war as soon as possible. And what we know from what's happening in Ukraine right now is that um, it's not going to be won quickly, that a war that both sides maybe thought would be over soon is dragging on. And either we're going to win or Putin's going to win. And I don't think Biden can afford, frankly, politically here at home or around the world to have Putin win this war. Well, Steve, I want you to just pull briefly on that China threat for us, because as you said, we see China and Russia cozying up to one another. How is China trying to position itself in this situation? And what does that mean for the U.S.? China over the last year and this year anniversary has meticulously been watched regarding whether it is backstopping the Russian war machine. And our observers say, no, they have not crossed that line. There is now concern that Chinese firms may in fact be be on the verge of crossing that line and providing drone support uh, to for Russian needs and other military support. Whether that happens or not, I can't say, but it's definitely that it has risen. At the same time, China has put on the table a ceasefire proposal and tried to insert itself uh, between uh, Russia and Ukraine and try to begin at least uh, uh, putting ideas on the table for how this can uh, end up around a negotiating table. Um, so far, there's been no uh, follow through with that. There's, you know, no one believes the effort as being a credible one. But those are the two tracks China's taking right now. We'll have more of the roundup after this quick break. Let's get back to the roundup with this message we got from Phil. He says, I'm a lifelong conservative and detest the pro-Russian sentiment taking root within the Republican Party. Russia is an adversary in every sense of the word, and support for Ukraine against Russian belligerents should not be a partisan issue. Domenico, I, I want to turn to some new poll numbers this week that seem to mark a shift in how Democrats feel about the president. Tell us more. Uh, President Biden seems to be getting some good news here because he's at 46% approval rating with all of the respondents in the survey, all adults, um, and up to 49% with registered voters. You know, the 46% is the highest he's been in a year. The 49% is the highest he was since before the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And now we're also seeing a turning tide of who, of 
of Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents saying that uh, the president is actually the best person to give them a best shot at winning in 2024. Um, in Back in November, it was only 38% of Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents who said that. Now that's up to 50%. Uh, and that's a real big shift. I mean, I think part of it is got to be, you know, what he said at the State of the Union address. Part of it um, is just the natural coalescing um, of uh, realizing that uh, Biden is likely to run. You also reported on another poll this week. This one looked at Americans' opinions on the debt ceiling. What did you find? Yeah, it's the same survey from NPR, PBS News, Aaron Marist. And the debt ceiling, what it found is uh, people are generally split on whether or not they think raising the debt ceiling is a good idea for the country. Now, I have to say, when we polled on this in 2011, uh, when the last time we had this pitched battle on it, you know, it was half of this support. So only 24% back then thought that the debt ceiling should be raised. I think there's been a big education over the past decade, especially watching the country's credit downgraded. There's been lots of news coverage surrounding that and what it means. Uh, and we're seeing that, um, you know, people are really split on how to, you know, fix the national debt. I mean, we're over $30 trillion now uh, when it comes to the national debt. And you've got half the country basically along political lines saying that you should mostly raise taxes and fees. And the other half of the country mostly saying that we should uh, cut spending uh, for programs and services. And we're seeing a real uh, driver here from younger voters who are sort of leading toward saying uh, that that we need to mostly raise taxes and fees right now they're not uh, you know meaning that it gets to a majority but in the coming decades how how younger voters and Gen Z and Millennials have sort of shifted left on economics may portend some very different federal uh, you know uh, action on what they do about the debt well Steve and Cheryl I see you both nodding along Steve I'll come to you first well you know I, th- I think right now that when you look at the electorate the most uh, uh, predictable and and biggest voting demographic are women over 55 and if you look at what's highest on their concern it's basically household costs drug costs and and the fact that Social Security and Medicare are in the crosshairs when it comes to the debt ceiling debate is, I think, sending shivers down that community of, of voters who are the ones most likely to vote. They show up to vote. They're divided between parties. But we see Mike Pence. Uh, we see others basically running into the gauntlet and saying, you know, we need to put Social Security and Medicare on the chopping block uh, to some degree, as some other Republicans have said. While Donald Trump, interestingly, has said, don't touch those items. And and, and so we see a divide uh, in the Republican Party. But we also see some, like Senator Joe Manchin and others, saying something has to be done on this front. But I think of those people that are lining up to run uh, for, for president, as we see some doing this, it's an interesting show to watch. Cheryl? So picking up on what Steve said about Social Security and Medicare, those entitlement programs make up about half the federal debt. And when you drill down on what people want, <clears throat> they may say they want to cut programs to make up the debt, but don't touch my Medicare and Social Security. And you saw at the State of the Union that President Biden really got the better of Mm -hmm. Republicans on this Mm -hmm. issue in this ad-lib moment um, when they, Republicans indicated from the audience that they, you know, were not going to cut Social Security and Medicare, as many of them had said they should do. I think his line was, I I love conversion. Right, I love (laughs) conversion. I'm so glad you agree with me. So the practical, in a practical sense, um, 
it may be difficult to bring down the debt because politically it's going to be hard to cut the programs that make up the biggest part of it. Well, let's pivot to a new investigation of sorts that's about to get underway into the attempts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. We learned this week that all of the evidence gathered last year by the House committee has been handed over to Tucker Carlson at Fox News. Steve, who made this decision? Well, Kevin McCarthy made that decision. Kevin McCarthy asked the Capitol Police for uh, all its files, all of the uh, digital files, the recordings of what happened. Um, and there were requests by Republican legislators for that material to be turned over to them. And essentially what Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, has done is outsource that to Tucker Carlson, Tucker Carlson and Fox News Channel. So it's a, a striking move. Lots of people are upset about it. Not only Democrats uh, are upset about it. Some Republicans are as well because they had hoped to cherry pick it. What I think is interesting and so far missing from a lot of the media coverage is that it won't be possible, in my particular view, for for Fox to cherry-pick that material and not at some point issue all of it for broader public... Well, well, uh, why do you think that's the case? Because they exist with... I you know, Look, I, I know I'm saying something controversial, but I don't believe that Fox owns that material. It's been given that material to peruse first before anyone else does. There will be other access to that to that material we will be able to look over the shoulder at what Tucker Carlson reports on what he does and he is he's been out there and one of the leading promoters of some of the conspiracy theories about what happened on January 6th but I think there is another dimension that that at least I have and I think there have been discussed around Kevin McCarthy the expectation that this is a first stage in the story and that others in the media will be given that same access at some point he won't I be able to cherry pick uh, he may be able to cherry pick on the front end, but we'll be able to hold him accountable, I believe, mm -hmm. down the road. Well, I, I hear your point. So as we all know, Fox News is in an ongoing legal battle around its coverage of the 2020 presidential election. While there may be others who have access to that material, my concern is that we're in this media environment where people are selecting certain sources. So if their only source is Fox News, the the correction, hmm. the, the broader um, perspective around what happened on January 6th, are they going to see or hear that? That's if a very only fair going point. And the problem is we all live, uh, candidly, we all know this from lots of studies in our own bubbles. Media bubbles, And yeah. the question is, how do you impact that other bubble? I don't have a good answer for it, mm -hmm. other than the fact that I think those of us in the media have a responsibility to do our utmost to make sure that we challenge anyone who does distort or wrongfully cherry pick uh, that material and information. And I um, and I expect that Fox <laughs> will, will uh, uh, potentially do that, and it should have oversight from. That's why we exist as a as a public media. But I think so far it has looked at that Fox that Tucker Carlson himself will have exclusive permanent rights to this material. And I think we need to challenge that. Sure. Well, I think also it's important to note where this material is. It's not like Kevin McCarthy turned this over and gave it to Fox and it's sitting at Fox headquarters. And they've got to come into a secure room at the Capitol and view all of this. Mm -hmm. So I think Steve makes a very strong argument that this material is public property. Um, one could argue that Kevin McCarthy has really abandoned his responsibility for shepherding this material. Um, Republicans didn't want to participate in the January 6th committee. Uh, they took everybody off except Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger stayed on. Uh, now it's their turn. I do think you're right. I think they will cherry pick. Fox will. I think they will try to create an alternative narrative. Um, 
And I think that that is frankly going to give Fox and, and the Republicans some kind of, or the conspiracy theorists, some kind of advantage because they will get out there first. Mm. Well, on Thursday, Democratic Chairman of the January 6th House Investigation, Benny Thompson of Mississippi, spoke to Steve Inskeep on Morning Edition. He said Speaker McCarthy's actions were reckless. I understand he had to make certain commitments to become Speaker, but those commitments under no circumstance should jeopardize the safety and security of the United States Capitol. As you understand, the chief of the Capitol Police didn't know that this material had been released. Can you imagine the chief of the Capitol Police reading about it in the paper? Uh, Domenico, just to be clear, has Speaker McCarthy broken any rules here? Well, you know, he can unilaterally do this. Um, You know, normally you would think there would be consultation with uh, Democrats and especially Capitol Police. I think that's the real concern among Democrats is whether or not uh, camera positions uh, or anything like that winds up being exposed, which is what uh, Thompson was referring to and talking about when he said that his committee um, actually had to sort of hold back some of that information because they conferred with the Capitol Police on what would be useful or not. And, you know, I mean, this is just a lot of politics here um, when, you know, you you just wonder what does Tucker Carlson or Fox News think they're going to get out of this to be able to point to, uh, you know, something that you know happened or didn't happen that day on January 6th when we all saw what happened very plainly on television as it happened and with a lot of the video that had been used uh, during the January 6th committee hearings. We got this message from Alyssa. She says, Kevin McCarthy didn't decide anything. He sold the January 6th material for his temporary position as speaker. Steve, how has that negotiation around his speakership come up in this conversation around, okay, what did you actually give? We're we're continually finding, and it's like an onion skin, you're taking off one bit or another. It was one of the most, you know, non-transparent sets of deals, you know, we've seen come up. And, And again, what I find interesting is that mainstream conservative Republican legislators are unnerved by some of the deals that they have seen come about. Um, I won't speak for them with regards to the decision to give Tucker Carlson the January 6th tapes, but there are a number of issues that continue to frustrate it, you know, whether it's deals on the Rules Committee, deals on potential votes. And we have to remember that uh, that motion to vacate uh, continues to exist so that if, if uh, Kevin McCarthy violates one of these implicit deals he made with one of these members to, to secure the speakership. Um, he's at risk uh, for a vote about his own speakership. And and I think we're going to continue to see the cards fall when they fall. And we, we just don't know uh, what all these deals are. Well, one deal that has become increasingly apparent is that he has elevated the stature of Marjorie Taylor Greene. He's put her on the very important committee that's going to be investigating. Who's called for a national divorce. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, he's put her on an important committee that's going to investigate the, the coronavirus response. I mean, she was and has been seen as the fringe, right? The fringe right, a conspiracy theorist, QAnon adherent. Now she is in the mainstream with actual power. And that is a result of the deals Kevin McCarthy cut. Before we turn to some of the other biggest stories from the week, we want to mention one particularly close to home. On Wednesday, NPR announced it will lay off 10% of its workforce. At least 100 people will lose their jobs. In a memo to our friends and colleagues at NPR, CEO John Lansing wrote, quote, this will be a major loss. Lansing says advertising dollars for NPR's podcasts have dried up 
and the network is expecting to fall about $30 million short of its annual budget. It's the latest round of layoffs at major media organizations, including the Washington Post, CNN, and Vox. And just because I know the relationships can get confusing... The 1A team is employed by WAMU, that's D.C.'s local public radio station. NPR distributes 1A to your local NPR station. We'll keep following that story and keep you updated. I want to pivot now to another person in the news this week, Emily Coors. She was the foreperson of a special grand jury convened in Georgia that's been investigating possible election interference by former President Donald Trump and his allies. On Tuesday, she embarked on a media tour where she publicly telegraphed some of the panel's closely held findings, including how many indictments we should expect. I will tell you, it's it's not a short list. So it's not... So we're talking about more than a dozen people? I would say that, yes. Cheryl, what's been the response to this media tour? I mean, how common is it to have a... You're, you're just this sort of a just st- My jaw is on the floor right now. Um, first of all, I can't believe that those leading the grand jury investigation did not say, don't talk to the press. Okay, I'm a reporter. I always want people to talk to the press. But this is a really, really serious investigation. It is the investigation that has the strongest possibility of bringing people to account for the plot to overturn the 2020 election. And I think pretty much everyone that I am hearing from says that these interviews perhaps may well jeopardize that, that um, there could be accusations that the grand jury was impartial, that there was a denial of due process. I think uh, it's not up to the grand jury to issue indictments. It's up to the prosecutor to issue indictments. I think that prosecutor must be terrified right now that all of these many, many months of work have gone you know, for naught because of Emily Kaur's loose lips. I I mean, Steve, did you watch any of the interviews? I've watched all of them. Uh I find it fascinating. I agree with Cheryl that our responsibility in media is try to get these people to speak. They never do. (laughs) And and now they have. And I've listened very carefully to what she described as the judge's instructions. And it's clear to me, at least from her perspective, that the judge did not say, don't speak to the press. The judge gave indications of what they could say or not say. And she's enjoying visibly the ride here. Um, At least that's my impression. But I agree with Cheryl that it's opened the door to lots of, you know, potential grand jury malfeasance questions yeah. and, um, and, the- and 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 I think I think that that will automatically happen in fact uh, given what she's done so there are implications it's not just cute and funny mm-hmm. that a grand juror said she would have loved to have spent you know a minute with Donald Trump or that you know fascinated by these very things or giving a you know intimation of what some of the grand jury findings and decisions were um, it's not a funny uh, situation. It really does have serious impact. It probably will open the door to challenge. Um, and I think it gets back to the question of what did the judge actually say? And, and regardless of the outcome, there's also just the public perception right. of the process. Yeah. But also, I want to mention one of the really important things that she disclosed is that some jurors brought newspapers in Mm -hmm. to the grand jury room. Now, grand jurors are not supposed to be influenced by their reading of the news. So Mm -hmm. that, you know, she she divulged significant material about how the grand jury operated. She confirmed that the jurors had listened to the recording of Trump and, and Raffensperger, the Georgia Secretary of State. Um, Multiple recordings. Right. She talked about specific witnesses. Um, This is very problematic. 
We've still got a lot more news to get to, and we'll be back with more from you and our guests in a moment. Let's get back to the roundup and turn to the environment. After a train transporting hazardous chemicals derailed in eastern Ohio earlier this month, the Environmental Protection Agency is demanding action from the train operator, Norfolk Southern. Let me also be crystal clear. Norfolk Southern will pay for cleaning up the mess that they created and the trauma that they inflicted on this community and impacted Beaver County residents. Today I'm announcing that EPA is ordering Norfolk Southern to conduct all necessary actions associated with the cleanup from the East Palestine train derailment. That was EPA Administrator Michael Regan speaking at a press conference in East Palestine, Ohio on Tuesday. If Norfolk Southern doesn't complete these tasks, the EPA says it will conduct the cleanup itself and charge the company triple the original cost. Steve, how significant is the EPA's response here? Well, it's reactive. Uh, I think the EPA is is trying uh, what it can in the midst of a public um, uproar over the fact that hazardous chemicals can go through a community unannounced. Actually, we have rules on that. They just weren't followed, uh, to, to be clear. And the EPA has come out and said this, but it's a very reactive posture. In fact, my critique of the Biden administration of, you know, Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg of the centers, you know, from the uh, health authorities is it's been highly reactive. The question is, what were the proactive steps before either on outlining health conditions that the public was facing or looking at why this derailment uh, could occur without other people knowing, in fact, how dangerous these were? And so it's given critics of the administration a real open field uh, to come in. So, um, I'm glad the EPA is on top of it. I'm glad they're talking about cleaning it up, but it's a very, very reactive posture. Domenico, how has Norfolk Southern responded to the demands from the EPA? Well, they've essentially been saying, you know, that they invested a lot in safety. Um, but one of the criticisms of them is how hard they've been lobbying against some of these regulations through the years. And while Republicans now are kind of uh, going to the town criticizing President Biden for uh, having been in Ukraine instead of getting to this uh, getting to this town in East Palestine. Uh, you know, there isn't talk of what kinds of regulations Republicans would then uh, be in favor of. And that's a point that Secretary Buttigieg was saying uh, yesterday when he was asked about uh, former President Trump's response uh, that uh, Biden hadn't been there and feeling like the administration uh, was, quote unquote, forgetting about the people of this town. The administration would argue they have not forgotten, obviously, been there on the ground with uh, certainly not the president, but other uh, administration officials. Um, you know, the question is the regulations that would impact uh, or make an impact here instead of having the industry regulate itself, who would, who's going to step in here and is anyone going to and will there be political support for that? But, but just to add yeah. one element to what Domenico said, we're over two years into the Biden administration that it inherited a set of executive orders and administrative actions and administrative findings. Not all of this was legislated through Congress, et cetera, and signed. These are actions that Biden administration could have reversed. In fact, Secretary Pete Buttigieg frequently talked about this sort of train safety and has now even admitted the fact that he uh, perhaps was behind, is not as attentive on some of these issues. The administration, the Biden administration had the ability to reverse a lot of the deregulation 
manipulation uh, uh, steps that the the Trump team, you know, had taken. Uh, and I just need to add that because mm-hmm. it contributed to the environment of, I think, dereliction uh, in, in this case. Sure. So I, I think Steve is right, but I also think that the politics in this case are flipping the substance. In other words, President Trump went there this week to East Palestine and made a big show of coming in to the rescue, you know, and he, he frankly uh, showed up Pete Buttigieg. Pete Buttigieg should have been there sooner. But it's important to note that the Trump administration rolled back regulations that would have uh, required railroad companies to enhance their safety when transporting hazardous chemicals. It's true that the Biden administration could have undone that more quickly. Buttigieg said this week that he wanted to hurry up that process. Congress approved a 2029 deadline for enhancing the safety on these rail cars uh, carrying ethanol and other hazardous materials. Um, Buttigieg now wants them to push that up to 2025. Um, so I, I think both both are true, but I do think it's important to say that the politics of this, which seem to now tilt in Republicans' favor, uh, are very different from the substance. Well, and, and when we talk about the politics of it and, and the former president going to Ohio, he's he's no longer an elected official. <laughs> he has no position of authority to do anything well, but, but show up stunt, and, and campaign. Right. It's a campaign exactly. stunt. That's, that's exactly what it is. So, okay. I mean, he was able to go there Trump and say, water. I'm here, and, you know, <laughs> President Biden's in Ukraine mm-hmm. giving Marjorie Taylor Greene a field day. So, I mean, that's, that, that's again, the tension that's out there. Uh, and I wrote today in Semaphore, you know, I hope President Biden has a conversation with the country at some point about why being engaged in the world does matter to them. Because right now they're being said, hey, we're engaged in the world. We're spending a lot of money on somebody else. But you're you're having extreme hardship at, you know, in your own home, in your own neighborhood and community. And it's created real tensions that the uh, that some candidates have been able to. Uh, take advantage of. Well, it'll be interesting to see if part of the former president's um, campaign <laughs> focuses on how he will approach uh, train regulation a little differently uh, if he's reelected. I, I would not expect that. <laughs> yeah. Just saying, um, you know, President Trump is about theater. He went to East Palestine. He announced that he was handing out Trump water. You know, um, right. it's always been it was almost like a flashback in a way. But we are Trump seeing Senator see J.D. Vance, in my view, stand up and ask big questions. He's also saying some people have been derelict. But, he, you know, I he's not falling into a a Trump style um, playing. He's, in, in, in my sense, asking why the health authorities weren't giving greater guidance. He was asking why. We're not. So it's an interesting moment for J.D. Vance that uh, he may have been underestimated by some in his responsibilities as a senator from and, Ohio. And you know who we can also look to is Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio, who's a former senator. He's a Republican. He's been a very sane voice on uh, the coronavirus and other health matters. He has not fallen in line always behind former President Trump. And I think he will demand answers and, and is demanding answers for what happened and whether or not his people are being put in jeopardy, in in health jeopardy. On Wednesday, Pennsylvania's governor, Democrat Josh Shapiro, said the state's attorney general is looking into possible criminal charges against Norfolk Southern. Domenico, how often do criminal charges actually emerge from cases like this? 
Uh, it's hard to say. I'm not 100% sure on, on the criminal charges and what, um, you know, how often that kind of thing winds up emerging on this, but not very often is the, is the case, uh, especially if, you know, the regulations that they were following um, were followed. That's Domenico Montanaro. He's senior political editor and correspondent at NPR. Domenico, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it. Let's move on to some legal news. The U.S. Supreme Court heard two cases this week all about the Internet. Justice Elena Kagan admitted that's not exactly her or her colleagues' expertise. I mean, we're a court. We really don't know about these things. You know, these are not like the nine greatest experts on the Internet. Still, the court must decide how responsible Google and Twitter are for user-generated content. The two cases they heard this week argue the tech platforms contributed to terrorist attacks and should be held legally responsible. Steve, what are the details of these two cases? Well, in, they, they both deal with the, the, the question of whether social media platforms have a responsibility for the content that appears uh, on those platforms. And one deal, they both basically relate to terrorism, where uh, uh, Google is being accused of, you know, through YouTube of having algorithms that fed messages to uh, a young person. And uh, Twitter is also uh, uh, being challenged for having let uh, ISIS material uh, run on its stage and being challenged for that responsibility. The, the question is whether or not there is now criminal liability or culpable liability in, 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 in those cases. And I think what's interesting about the judge's response is that while some may say, hey, logically, there is a problem and concern here, it's been very difficult to hear who's going to draw the line. In fact, Timothy Wu, who was President Biden's National Economic Council uh, advisor on on technology and competition and, and a very noted authority on this who's associated with some of the Supreme Court justices, came out and, and was very critical of the plaintiffs and said, you know, or of, of the uh, uh, challengers in this case and saying they're not drawing the lines. No one's putting on the table drawing where those lines need to be. And so I find this an interesting moment where I think people are trying to find an outcome, don't see anyone putting anything credible on the table thus far. And so the judges... Um, are expected not to provide sweeping uh, judges, but Cheryl may yeah, see well, different. I, the thing that's very interesting about this, and especially the Google case, is that it revolves around a problem that has really been vexing Congress for quite some time, and that is Section 230 right. of the Decency, the Communications, Communications Decency, Decency Act. Act. Right. So it was enacted in 1996. The internet was mm-hmm. a very different place, and it provided a shield against social media platforms like uh, Google and Facebook, et cetera, from being sued for the content they uh, they house. And my colleague Adam Liptak, who covers the court, had a really interesting analogy, I thought. He said that the act treats these platforms kind of like bookstores. You don't hold bookstores accountable for the books they sell, for what's in them. Um, but the question is, should these platforms be treated more like newspapers, which can be sued uh, for libel and for for the content that they print? And that's a question that has really vexed Congress when it comes to things like curbing child sex trafficking and, and pornography and all these other issues that are sort of bad outcomes from the Internet. And Congress hasn't figured out a way to fix it. And it seems like the court is maybe not going to figure out a way to fix it either. Steve, ultimately, I mean, what's at stake? for the tech companies here, but also for the internet and how we interact with it. Well, what's at stake for the uh, internet companies is 
liability. I mean, look, I'm going to be very candid. Uh, we went, we've gone through a phase where we've seen those looking at social behavior and engagement with the internet as being driven uh, by raging animosity, by uh, toxicity. And we've been all struggling with the question of what's driving toxicity and division in the nation. And a lot of people suspect that social media platforms are at least part of that crowd and, and, and the issue. And the question is, how do we get responsible civitas, civic engagement, behavior, belief that minority rights exist even though there is a majority? And 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 I think that that underlies the stakes involved with this, with this issue. But for these companies, which have benefited in, in at least my view, in part, from the toxicity that is driven by by this. The question is, should they, you know, have um, uh, economic liability in that? Europe has moved much further mm-hmm. along than we have in the United States. Europe may set the standard for what is acceptable or not. Because these are transnational firms, those standards may become the de facto global norms. But that that's what's at, at stake for them. But I think for society... And, and politically, the stakes are much larger. But the companies, in a way, are trying to have it both ways because we're seeing them regulate content. We saw Twitter and Facebook work with the Biden administration, for instance, to tamp down misinformation during the COVID pandemic. So they are, in fact, taking responsibility for some of their content, but not for all of their content. And I think that, you know, that opens them up, frankly, to... Uh, questions about whether or not they do need to take responsibility for their content and Mm. also for their algorithms, for the kind of YouTube videos that may pop up, which, and this was an issue in the Google case, that Mm. videos are popping up for individual people that are in a way a suggestion, right, from YouTube of what you should watch. So it is sort of an active gesture um, on the part of the social media platform in encouraging people to look at specific content. Facebook and Twitter do this as well. Now, before we wrap up the domestic portion of the news roundup, I want to make sure we touch on this story. Last weekend, it was announced that former President Jimmy Carter had entered home hospice care in Plains, Georgia. The Carter Center said in a statement on Saturday that America's 39th president, now 98, has, quote, decided to spend his remaining time at home with his family and receive hospice care instead of additional medical intervention. I just want to hear your reflections um, as we we send our best thoughts and wishes to the Carter family. Uh, Cheryl? Well, I, you know, an aide to President Carter once told me that he would outlive us all. I, I went to see him actually in 2014. He was still vibrant. Uh, he was pushing 90 at the time. Um, I've been talking to historians this week about Carter's post-presidency, which has been truly the most significant post-presidency in the modern era, four times as long as his term in office. Um, He has truly been a great humanitarian and has done a lot of good in the world. And I think that no matter what you think of Jimmy Carter's presidency, that Americans will mourn the loss of Jimmy Carter. Steve, your thoughts? Just say very quickly that, that you know Jimmy Carter may not have been a perfect president, but he may very well have been a perfect post president. Um, and I'll tell just one short vignette. I remember many people were confused by Zbigniew Brzezinski's name, his national security advisor. They wanted to come up with a different like pet name for him because it was so complicated. Carter insisted that every member of his staff learn how to say Zbigniew, Zbigniew Brzezinski's name, how to spell it as a point of respect, not just for Brzezinski, but for anyone who may may serve. It's a very touching moment about personal respect. I should also mention Mark Brzezinski is now the United States ambassador to Poland, uh, where President Biden just visited. 
That's Steve Clemens. He's editor-at-large at Semaphore. Steve, thank you. And Cheryl Gay-Stolberg from The New York Times. Cheryl, it's always great to have you. We'll be back with the global edition of the News Roundup after this short break. And remember to connect with us on future shows. Download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a message. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White, and this is the global edition of the News Roundup. One year ago... The world was bracing for the fall of Kyiv. Well, I just come from a visit to Kyiv, and I can report Kyiv stands strong. (laughs) Kyiv stands proud. It stands tall. And most important, it stands free. Today marks one year since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. President Biden commemorated the event on Tuesday in Warsaw, Poland, a day after he paid a surprise visit to Kyiv. There, he met with President Volodymyr Zelensky and renewed America's commitment to supporting Ukraine until the war ends. We kick off the International News Roundup hearing directly from Ukraine on this first anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of the country. BBC's Ukraine correspondent James Waterhouse has been reporting on the conflict all year, and he was there to see the build-up to the invasion. Earlier, I asked James to describe the mood of the country as Ukraine marks the significant and somber milestone. When you talk to everyday people on the street, it's more of a sentiment in that they still see it as there being no choice. They have to fight because if they don't, then Ukraine ceases to exist. And we've seen with the revolution of dignity, you know, these anti-government protests nine years ago now that triggered this campaign of Russian aggression. You know, when people feel that their democracy is failing, Ukrainians do something about it. So I think in that sense, it's more of a sentiment. But there is a kind of military reality here as well, where certainly in the East, there has been nine years of war and heavy fighting and shelling. And now we're talking about a sizable territory, which Ukraine still does not control. And it's been very public about the fact that it's still unable to push through and break the defensive line It sees battle tanks and longer-range missiles and fighter jets, which it keeps asking for, as the key of trying to unlock that. But for now, it is Russia launching more and more offensives. It is Russia, while experiencing bigger losses, it is able to for now. Ukraine can't. It's using ammunition quicker than it can be made, and it is still the smaller force. So time is still not Ukraine's friend. You mentioned ammunition, and, and we read reports that the shortage of ammunition is a pressing concern for Ukraine right now. Draw a line for us between what military aid the country is currently receiving and the military aid it's still seeking. So we have seen tens of billions of dollars of military aid come Ukraine's way, and it's been an incremental process. So I remember in January before the invasion, countries like Germany were very hesitant to send lethal aid. They were sending helmets or military hospitals. But what we have seen, we have seen the weaponry go from anti-tank launchers all the way through to automatic weapons, to training, to longer range missiles, to battle tanks. And now they're asking for fighter jets. We don't know yet whether fighter jets are going to be a bridge too far. But clearly, countries like the US have, have provided the political cover for other Western allies to follow suit. So not to take away from the surprising, extraordinary resilience shown by Ukrainian forces, Western help has been critical, but Ukrainians have also known that it was always going to be them and them alone to stage this fight. The appetite from NATO members to get involved has been zero. 
they are petrified of this war spilling into a broader conflict. But what we have seen internally is growing confidence on what it's willing to do for Ukraine. So it's quite interesting in that regard. Well, I'm also wondering, James, how attitudes toward Russia have shifted among Ukrainians. We have seen a real cultural shift in Ukraine. And it kind of makes the broader point, doesn't it, that sadly wars and conflicts shape so much of the world we know today in terms of borders and everything else. And I think Russia wants this war to change borders. That's perfectly obvious. But what we have seen is, and time and time again in history, when Russia has been aggressive towards Ukraine, that Ukrainian sense of identity is always galvanized. It's learned to live under the Soviet Union, um, as well as, you know, next to the Russian Empire. But what we are seeing, we're seeing Ukrainians who are primarily Russian speakers choosing to speak Ukrainian, even though it might not be as good. We are seeing political shifts further westwards on issues of NATO membership and EU membership. This is what the country wants as a whole. Whether that is going to happen, I think at the moment it's unlikely, certainly not in the near to medium future. But there is a kind of opposite effect of Russia's aggression. As Moscow tries to pull Ukraine in, Ukraine in just about every other way tries to pull away. But no, it was possible that a puppet government could have been installed. That could have happened within days, but it didn't. And it's desperate for it to stay that way. We're tracking reports that Putin's pushing to assemble a fighting force of 300,000. That's expected to spearhead a new spring offensive. What concerns are you picking up about that? It is concerning because we come back to the mass argument. So if you take the city of Bakhmut, the eastern city, which has taken a lot of the headlines at the moment, you see there where you have primarily mercenary fighters from the notorious Wagner Group, this kind of paramilitary organisation. That part is interlinked with the Russian state, but also a private company, which does a lot of Russia's dirty work. Spices there have talked about waves of waves of men trying to storm the city and just getting shot. But they just keep coming, certainly after they recruited from, from Russian prisons. We've also seen Russian prisoners of war. We've met them ourselves, where they've been captured within days of being conscripted. They found themselves on the battlefield with little to no training. If you'd asked me about this at the end of last year, after the Ukrainian counteroffensives, I would have said, look, you know, the way we're seeing this plan out, certainly in the south around Kherson, you have a smaller motivated force, a more modern style fighting unit with equip- better equipment against a fairly demotivated, bloated uh, army. And I thought that might be pivotal. I actually thought, you know, where, could, where, where will Ukraine stop? They want to take more. But now it feels different. It seems Russia's mass is allowing it to sustain this assault. And, you know, while Vladimir Putin tries to desperately get some kind of symbolic victory. So I think it is concerning because what conscription and and adding to um, increasing weapons productions and ammunition and adding to the size of the Russian army, what that does is add time to this conflict at at best. And then here we come again, where Ukraine is worried about Western support waning. It's also worried about unsustainable losses. So it's concerning in that regard. Well, we hear from many experts that there will need to be a negotiated peace settlement But in this current dynamic, what's going to bring leaders from both sides to the table? It's enormously difficult. We've just come from um, this week. We met with the 
Prime Minister Denis Shmihal, and it's the first time he said, look, we recognise that wars end with negotiations. We are willing, we will not stop fighting until Russia shows a willingness to negotiate its complete withdrawal. But what does that mean? How do you negotiate a withdrawal? Where is the compromise there? If, if you know, Because Russia, you can be sure, aren't, as things stand, going to let go what they've taken. And so to me, you have two problems. You have Ukraine saying there's, we're not going to compromise on territory because why should we? It would leave us weaker if we gave up Crimea, for example. And also Russia will just keep doing it again. There's, you know, they, it's, it's not deterring them from this aggression. And then you have Vladimir Putin, who needs to have some kind of trophy for his critics back in Russia. He's invested too much. It's very hard to see any kind of off-ramp. So I think there are three avenues we could look at in how this war could end. You could either have the long haul, which Russia's no stranger to. You could either have a negotiated settlement, where the compromise is, as discussed, we don't know. Or Ukraine could, Ukraine or Russia could win. Ukraine could either fully repel Russia or Russia could seize, for example, the entire eastern Donbass region and then just dig in. So, but that feels so far off at the moment, to be honest with you. You know, we can talk a lot about military strategy and uh, the possibility of negotiated peace settlements. No matter what, Ukrainians have been deeply impacted by this war. And from a, a psychological standpoint, living under the specter of this type of violence and aggression, we know Ukrainians have, have as you said, really clung to and, and dug into their identities as Ukrainians. But I imagine there's a deep cost as well. Can you give us a sense of that? It's it's unimaginable. You know, us as journalists, we bear witness to things, don't we? And, you know, I've got Ukrainian colleagues who've gone through really quite serious trauma. And for me, I saw firsthand the awful trauma of this full-scale invasion because no one actually thought it was going to happen, you know, in my immediate circles. And then you have everything else that has followed, where that decision this day last year led to... So when Russia pulled out of Kiev, it left an almost tide mark of occupation and fighting. And we then realised all those sounds and explosions and we then realized what those were we saw cities reduced to rubble we saw overwhelming evidence of war crimes where um, civilians had been deliberately targeted we met people who'd lost everything and it goes on and in the winter approached russia targeted infrastructure so people have learned to live without power in freezing temperatures they experience blackouts every day. And then when you go towards the front line, it's just so shocking how ferocious the fighting is. It's a static, gritty, bloody war that is showing no signs of ending. So you sort of you see people who are defiant, but there is a tiredness as well. People are tired. President Zetsky himself has talked about his fatigue, you know, but you just have to keep going. So I think it's a real fatigue. No one I've met, though, has said, let's make a concession. Let's end the war tomorrow. Because for them, it's, 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 it's about a much broader point of survival. That's James Waterhouse. He's the Ukraine correspondent for the BBC, and he joined us earlier from Kyiv. Let's welcome some more voices to the roundup. My guests today are familiar voices. Nancy Youssef is national security correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Nancy, thanks for joining us. 
Thank you for having me. And Emily Tampkin is a freelance journalist and author, most recently, of Bad Jews, A History of American Jewish Politics and Identities. Emily, welcome back. Great to be here. Thank you. Nancy and Emily, I know you were listening along to my conversation with James Waterhouse in Ukraine. I'd love to get your thoughts on what we heard and and where your minds are one year into this war. Nancy? I think more than anything, I'm wondering how does this end? Because I think we heard this week a lot of um, uh, inspiration from the Ukrainians and all of what they've been able to accomplish in the the last year from President Biden and from others. We heard from um, Vladimir Putin his um, determination to keep fighting, that there was no outcome other than a Ukraine as part of Russia. And as James, I thought, outlined so beautifully, there's no clear path to sort of resolving those two very, very different views on what Ukraine looks like. Both Russia, the U.S. and its allies have um, starkly different visions of how this war um, must end. They both see this as a war about values for um, the U.S., a, a fight for democracy for Russia, um, the way Mr. Putin presented it as a threat to Russian security. And, and and when those visions are so stark, it's hard to see how you come up with a resolution um, that, that is enduring. And so um, as someone who's covered wars for a long time, when one hits the one-year anniversary, it's it's – it's worrisome because um, it portends potentially a protracted conflict. And what we're hearing um, over the past week, and I think today, is um, that possibility, a protracted uh, conflict um, in a war that's already cost so much in terms of life and treasure. Right. At least 8,000 civilians have been killed in the past year, and more than 13,000 have been wounded. The, the number of, of troops that have been killed or injured, the numbers around that are, are less clear. Emily, I'd love to hear from you as well. What jumped out at me, I mean, first of all, the, the, the pointlessness <clears throat> the pointlessness of a year of fighting and of, of all those deaths, but, but to the point of um, people saying that there should be a negotiated, con- uh, negotiated end to this conflict, which many say that, you know, if it ends, it will end in a negotiated way. And I, I don't necessarily disagree with that. But I do, I, I do wonder with whom the Ukrainians are, are meant to be negotiating at this point, because Russia, as, as we've heard this week, um, still maintains that Ukraine is an existential threat to, to Russia, certainly as Putin sees Russia. Um, so I, I think we've, we've heard a lot this week and in the run up to this week of, oh, how, you know, how does it end? Um, and I don't know that, that that's any clearer this week than it was really a year ago. Well, let's get to another element of the war that's headed in now into year two. During a visit to Turkey, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said the U.S. has reason to believe China may arm Russia. We are uh, concerned that uh, China is considering uh, uh, supporting Russia's war effort in Ukraine with lethal assistance, something that we're watching uh, very, very closely. As I also said, uh, and as President Biden said, going back many months when the aggression first took place and he spoke to President uh, Xi Jinping, uh, he told him at that point that um, there would be real uh, consequences in our own relationship were China to provide lethal assistance to um, Russia in this uh, aggression against Ukraine or uh, in a systematic way aid in the evasion of, uh, of sanctions. Nancy, how has the relationship between Russia and China evolved over the past year? It's a great question. Um, Officially, uh, China's position is that it is neutral on this war. 
However, practically speaking, that has not been the case. What we've seen over the past year is that they have bought um, Russian gas imports. There has been economic support. Um, there has been engagement between Russia and China in an effort to bolster Russia um, in the, in, during this conflict. And, and so what we heard from Secretary Blinken is a potential escalation of that, that the Chinese are considering um, arming the the Russians um, in this fight. Presumably, this would be um, uh, ammunition or other weapon systems that the Russian and Chinese military share, such that there aren't Chinese fingerprints on their level of engagement. For China, I think that um, what we're seeing signals of is that they don't want to see a humiliating Russian defeat in the war, which is arguably why they're considering taking on this position. The challenge is that that China is also looking to have economic relations with the European Union. It's not looking to further agitate, presumably, relations with the U.S. And so it's trying to walk this line of um, saying it's neutral while supporting um, Russia in a more subversive way. The other thing we saw from China this week is an effort by them to sort of be a part of the the conversation, and maybe that's one reason they're considering providing weapons. We saw um, points put forward as as they call it a peace plan. I'd, I'd say it's more talking points about um, a, a peace uh, plan, and I think we're seeing a China that also wants to be a part of the dialogue going forward to say that we matter in this war that has had such impact across the world. Well, Nancy, your paper, The Wall Street Journal, reports that Chinese leader Xi Jinping is planning to visit Russia to push for peace talks and to avoid the use of nuclear weapons. On Wednesday, Russian President Putin and a top Chinese diplomat, Wang Yi, met in Moscow. Putin said the relationship between the countries is, quote, reaching new milestones. Russian-Chinese relations are developing just as we planned in previous years. Everything is moving forward, developing, and we are reaching new milestones. Cooperation in the international arena between the People's Republic of China and the Russian Federation, as we have repeatedly underlined, plays an important role in stabilizing the international situation. Emily, what's your takeaway from this meeting and what do you think this relationship means for the war in Ukraine moving forward? There was sort of an interesting exchange where they they agreed that their relationship was so important for um, international stability, which I found sort of ironic given that one, um, you know, invaded another sovereign country. Um, I think that, one, we're going to see this relationship become increasingly uh, important, particularly as tensions increase between the United States and China. I think the United States, we, we, may, we may see frustrations on the part of the United States that certain European countries um, aren't taking a firmer line on China, given that, you know, and, and perhaps um, implying that history is repeating itself with particularly Western European countries not being wary enough of, a, of an authoritarian state. I also think more generally it speaks to the United States and Ukraine and, and their European allies have really tried to isolate Russia. And that's really worked with with the U.S. and Ukraine and their allies. But for partners or more ambivalent countries, and particularly the global south, that's that's been um, less effective. Like, yes, there was this overwhelming non-binding resolution at the United Nations to tell Russia to leave Ukraine. But that's non-binding. And I think we should note that that several countries did abstain, among them India and Pakistan. Um, and India, which is a which, which is, does not have the same antagonistic relationship to the United States that China does, nevertheless has increased its purchase of um, Russian energy and continues to be a, you know, continues to get its military equipment from uh, from Russia. So 
that's also something to watch in year two. Nancy, just briefly, when you when you look at China and the role it's attempting to step into here to, to try to push for peace talks, to um, visit Russia and, and talk about avoiding the use of nuclear weapons. What's your read of how China's trying to position itself or maybe reposition itself on the world stage? I think they're trying to sort of have it both ways, frankly, to say that we matter on the world stage and that we are a relevant force. I think the challenge is that they don't have a lot of experience um, in, in engaging this. And I think you really saw that in the peace plan that they put forth. It really lacked specifics. It talked about sovereignty, but it didn't talk about Ukrainian sovereignty. And so this is um, a nation that is looking to say we um, deserve the kind of engagement that other uh, superpower nations do. Deserve, but do they have the experience, the finesse, or the ability to execute it in such a way that it changes the outcome? There's so far not evidence of that. Keeping in mind that we are starting to see a more um, aggressive posture by China, I think the uh, visit by Wang Yi uh, earlier this week was a precursor for a meeting between the two leaders and that while China might be new to this sort of stage, I don't think they should be underestimated because that relationship between China and Russia is an important one and one that I think we have to watch closely in terms of how it evolves, particularly given um, the potential that this war goes on for a, a, a a long period of time. Well, I want to turn to another story this week. At least 11 Palestinians were killed Wednesday in a raid by Israeli military forces in the occupied West Bank. More than 100 people were injured. Emily, what more do we know about this raid? Um, I mean, we know that Israel says that it was in, in, carried out in order to stop um, an attack. Latest I heard was at least four civilians were killed. Um, we also know that this follows 2022, which was the deadliest year um, since 2005 for Palestinians killed by Israeli forces in the West Bank. That's according to the United Nations. 2005 is when they started recording it. And there's another way in which this is going to prove um, a test for the Biden administration specifically that I wanted to mention, which is that the Biden administration reportedly told Netanyahu that they would consider it um, problematic, let's say, if civil administration of the West Bank was turned over to Smotrich, that's the finance minister who is pro-annexation, um, among other things. Um, yesterday, it was reported that Netanyahu has indeed turned over part of the civil administration of the West Bank to this person. So this thing that the Biden administration said would be taken as a sign of annexation, um, or a step toward annexation, if you, if you prefer, has indeed happened. So all this is to say that we are continuing to see violence carried out by Israeli forces against Palestinians. And yes, some of those are you know, uh, alleged militants, but some are um, civilians in the West Bank. And we are seeing the administration of the West Bank turned over, at least in part, to somebody who is openly in favor of annexation. In Jerusalem, thousands took to the streets Monday in ongoing pro protests. They object to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's new plan to overhaul the country's legal system. Here's what one protester had to say to the New York Times. We are here to protest the changes which are being done to our judiciary system to severely limit its independence and to uh, destroy its integrity and destroy our democracy, basically. Nancy, how would this proposed system give Netanyahu more power? So a couple of things, um, if, if you'll indulge me. One, we have to note that um, Israel does not have a formal constitution. 
And in addition to that, um, it has a unicameral legislative body, the Knesset. And I point that out to say that there are the checks that I think we're used to in our system. And for many people, the judiciary was that. And this proposal makes two changes. One, it increased the government's sway in choosing judges. This was often chosen by um, a judicial body. This would give more vote to elected officials. And it sets limits on the Supreme Court's ability to strike down legislation. It allows the Knesset potentially to override decisions by the Supreme Court. And for critics of this, it, it, they see it as weakening and politicizing the courts and undermining democratic foundations because you could see a scenario where you have um, an unrestrained majority rule. Those who support it would say that it shifts power away from the bureaucratic elite to elected officials. But I think for many in Israel, it's seen as a real threat to um, its democratic norms because the judiciary has been often that check in a system that doesn't have them the way that we think of it in the U.S. system. And so it's led to weeks and weeks of protests. It's worth noting that Netanyahu, who supports this, is under investigation for corruption himself. And I think there's a fear that um, with these changes, you would have elected officials really deciding and defining the Supreme Court and it shifting as political parties shift. And again, no checks in the case where you have um, this, the majority rule in, in the prime ministership in the legislative body. Emily, places within the broader political context of what's happening in Israel right now, how are, how are the powers shifting there? I think this is seen as a step toward, a further step uh, toward a right-wing political path. I think for, certainly for Israeli Jews, um, it's seen as, you know, perhaps it's still partially democratic, but it's not, it's not liberal, which is why you've seen people coming out protesting week after week um, in the streets, you know, I think, um, I, th- I think that, you know, as Nancy said, defenders of this change will say, well, um, we're, we're putting power in the hands of the voters. But as we've seen all over the world, um, just voting, you know, defenders of liberal democracy would say that voting is but one part of democracy and it's independence of institutions like the judiciary that ensures full liberal democracy. Um, I would note that you have also seen Israeli Arab M- MKs, members of the Knesset, who have said, it's not like the Supreme Court has been any great friend to us. However, we still think that these changes will further embolden this this right-wing, far-right government. Um, so that's, that's it, it, it's part of a broader uh, anti-liberal, let's say, move in Israel. So Nancy, as you, as you watch this story continue to play out, what are you watching most closely, not just in terms of what's happening internally, in the country, but also in terms of Israel's relationship to the rest of the world. What struck me this week is that the levels of violence we're starting to see haven't been seen since the early 2000s, which you'll recall um, led to the Second Intifada. We're seeing this tit-for-tat battle going between both sides. We're seeing Nebulus and Janine emerge as sort of um, pockets of Palestinian resistance. And so I think the concern is, for me personally, is that are we starting to see a, another level of escalation in an environment where it's harder to find um, um, a, a pathway to avoiding more level, uh, increased levels of violence. In the early 2000s, there was a different level of engagement by the U.S. There was a different kind of government there in place. And so um, that coupled with these changes to the legislature, um, I I think portend uh, potential um, instability going forward. One of the things that the Supreme Court 
in Israel is known for was putting some restraint on settlements. We now have a government that is pushing for more settlements. And so the the, the trends are showing or pointing towards more uh, instability at a time where the relationship with the U.S. and Israel is not what it was and doesn't have the, as clear a pathway for potentially quelling um, a, a spark of, of violence. Well, on Monday, a second earthquake struck Turkey and Syria two weeks after the February 6th quakes that killed more than 47,000 people. At least eight people were killed in Monday's earthquake in Turkey. It was also felt in Jordan, Cyprus, Israel, Lebanon, and Egypt. Rescue and relief efforts continue in Turkey and Syria from the first set of quakes. The Turkish government announced last week that more than 5,000 shipping containers and over 200,000 tents have been dispatched to help house people displaced by the earthquakes. Let's turn now to Nigeria. Joining us is Yinka Adegoke, editor of Semaphore Africa. Yinka, thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. So Nigerians head to the polls on Saturday. More than 90 million voters will have a say in who next leads Africa's most populous country. Uh, President Muhammadu Buhari is term limited, but there are 18 people on the ballot to replace him. Who are the front runners for president in this election? Well, you have three main front runners likely who have a good chance of winning, and you have perhaps one more uh, who will perhaps uh, influence the outcome. So the three main frontrunners are um, Bola Tinubu, who is a former governor of Lagos State and is best known more recently as a, as a kingmaker. He, he helped bring President Buhari to power in 2015. And then you have uh, Atiku Abubakar, who is the leader of the um, progressive uh, Democratic Party, and he, this is his sixth time of running for president, um, and um, he's you know always fallen short, but uh, is expected to have um, a very strong showing in the north of the country, where the majority of Nigeria's voters are. And then you have Peter B uh, with the Labour Party. He is um, the strongest. Um, third-party candidates uh, the country has seen since in the last 23 years of uh, democracy. And he uh, represents the Labour Party and is also uh, likely to have a very good chance. He's been, a ve- he's been very popular on social media. So, you know, if you're international, you probably would have seen people talking about Peter B. And it sounds like he has a really good chance. But on the ground, you know, there's all, you know, uh, doubts that... Uh, that sort of social media youth vote will translate into um, electoral votes. Also in the running, not likely to win, but could have a say, could split the vote in the north, is um, Rabiu Kwan Kwaso um, of the NNPP. And he um, is very strong in Kano State, which is the second largest uh, state in terms of votes. Um, and he could have some influence on how uh, it all shapes up. And we should mention the NNPP is the new Nigeria People's Party. Yes. What issues are most important to voters during this election? Well, it's most of the obvious ones. The economy has been in a really bad place for, uh, frankly, the majority of President Buhari's um, uh, uh, administration for the last eight years. But then that's been sort of made even worse by the the rise of insecurity across the country. Now, many of your listeners will be familiar with 
with Boko Haram and all, you know, which was sort of restricted to the, the northeast of the country. But in the last sort of five years, um, the, the insecurity has just spread across the country with various forms of insurrection or uh, insurgencies and um, kidnappings of people, you know, just, I mean, it's all pretty much linked to poverty and, 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 and you know, people just trying to, or ordinary Nigerians trying to figure out a way to, to survive. But it, it's become um, a major issue across the country. Fuel shortages, also another big issue, which is, you know, deeply ironic given Nigeria is Africa's largest uh, oil exporter. Well, voters are also deciding on Nigeria's parliament. What are you watching for there? Well, this, this is where it kind of gets interesting because I, I, I think um, what typically happens is, you know, the two main parties, right? The um, ruling party of President Buhari, APC, All Progressive Congress and um, PDP, which had been in power for the, uh, the, first, um, two, the first eight years of, um, sorry, the first 16 years of uh, Nigeria's uh, democracy, of this 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 uh, this run of democracy, the, those two parties have always dominated uh, the, um, the the national assembly, both in the Senate and the House of Representatives. Um, but lots of there's lots of lots of people are watching to see if Labour Party actually picks up enough seats in case if Peter B, the leader of the Labour Party, does win, he's going to need support within within uh the national assembly and so there there's a lot of focus on whether um they will take pick up enough seats to at least have some some way of supporting uh an ob presidency now there is some new technology in play this election it's called the bimodal voter accreditation system briefly what's the story there and how are voters responding well the the, the idea nigeria's elections um like frankly, elections in many countries uh, in, in the last sort of uh, few years have, have been so plagued by this whole idea that uh, the elections are being rigged and, and people are, uh, the wrong people are voting, all this stuff. And what this uh, system does is it uh, enables um, uh, voters to literally, like it says, be verified, right? So you get... Um, they, they use fingerprints and facial recognition to identify the voters. Um, it uh, it also takes account of all the um, of what's happening at the actual voters' units. There are like one hundred seventy thousand uh, polling units, and um, it keeps records of that. And there's a website which allows people to go and see what's actually happening. So the whole idea is there's there's transparency, and the votes can't be as easily manipulated by uh, you know different parties whether it's the actual political parties or individuals at these at these voters units it, the, that's the that's the hope right mm. that that this this system should should get get around some of the many 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 problems that have uh, existed over the, you know throughout democracy in Nigeria on well, the just very briefly yinka nigeria's elections in 2015 and 2019 were delayed does it seem they're going to go forward saturday as planned <laughs> yes that was that was the big topic in my news meeting this morning <laughs> uh, talking to everyone in nigeria and both both reporting and and speaking to the team um so far it sounds like it's going to go ahead. I mean, I I, I remember 2019 being 
you know, just staying up all night making calls and, and trying to figure out what was going on. Um, if right as of right now, we're what uh, I guess twelve hours away or something from polls open, opening. Um, it seems like uh, it will go ahead. Um, that's the hope. Um, haven't heard anything about a delay. There, usually, what happens is you have all these rumors going around because there are concerns about one thing or the other. Um, there hasn't been, it's, it's interesting, there hasn't been that kind of rumor because there's another big distraction going on, which is this issue of the currency change, which has kept, which has been a huge problem for ordinary Nigerians who are trying to get hold of their cash because they changed, they redesigned the currency about a few months ago and, there's not enough cash going around. So everyone's more concerned with that. That's the biggest issue. Well, we'll certainly be watching for election results. That's Yinka Adegoke. He's the editor of Semaphore Africa. Yinka, thank you. Thank you very much for having us. Let's turn now to the United Kingdom. On Wednesday, a British-born woman lost an appeal to get her UK citizenship back. She left the country in 2015 with two of her friends, went to Syria, and married an ISIS fighter. She was 15 years old at the time. Shamima Begum's citizenship was revoked in 2019 after she was found in a camp in Syria. And even though she lost the latest appeal Wednesday, her lawyers say the case is, quote, nowhere near over. Nancy, her citizenship was initially revoked on national security grounds. What is her legal team trying to uh, argue in their appeal to get it back? A couple things. They're saying that um, she was trafficked, that that while we have seen the images of her leaving, that this was not, uh, that once she arrived in Syria, she was trafficked and that she was lured into Syria by trafficking and that um the argument under the UK system, which is that she could be, lose her citizenship because she's eligible as um, a Bangladeshi because her mother's Bangladeshi. But Bangladesh has said that they will not accept her. And so this idea that you can strip her citizenship because she's eligible for another one, her lawyers argue, don't apply for her because she has no other possible um, citizenship. She is stateless. I, I, I think it's worth noting that this idea of banishing people, restripping people's citizenship is something that goes back as far as democracy itself and historically has been found to ultimately not work. Um, we've seen a rise of this post 9-11 and going after terrorism cases. Um, and, and I think the broader argument that they would make and critics of this are making is you, you – this, countries have a responsibility towards citizens. If they believe she's committed a crime, critics would argue, bring her in have her go through the legal system that exists there and hold her accountable for her actions. That the idea that you can banish someone and just leave them out there doesn't even deal with the underlying issues, I think critics would argue. And so while this is a case about one woman, I think it's a broader case about how um, countries treat um, citizens that they um, have seen commit the worst crimes in this case, terrorism, and the long-term consequences of trying to strip citizens of their of their citizenship is it does it come at risk to democracy itself? More news in citizenship. Chile and Argentina have joined Spain in offering more than 300 Nicaraguan people citizenship. That's after they were exiled by Nicaraguan President Daniel Ortega two weeks ago. Emily, why were these people exiled? This is really the latest in a crackdown on dissent and democracy that we've seen from uh, one-time revolutionary Ortega. Um, several years ago, protests started against proposed um, 
social welfare or, or reforms. Um, and, and it's really been a democratic dissent since. So these people who, who I should say, we should say, include like quite prominent journalists and novelists and cultural figures um, were, were stripped of their citizenship. Um, the Spanish government, as you said, among others, has offered to take these people who are now effectively political prisoners. But I do think it speaks to, and I'm not trying to compare the government of Nicaragua to that of the United Kingdom, but I do think that it speaks to Nancy's point of using um, of, of, of using stripped citizenship as as a political tool and whether or not it's one that is um, that we can reconcile with democracy. And what is the U.S. saying about this? We should note that the initial 222 Nicaraguan people who were exiled were flown to Washington, D.C. That's right. They were flown to the United States. Um, at that point, the Spanish government offered them citizenship. Um, you know, the U.S. has been concerned, has expressed concern about Ortega and about human rights and about democracy. But as as we also saw with Venezuela, as we've seen elsewhere in Latin America, America, the, the United States' own history um, with some of these countries is fraught such that it's it's unclear if U.S. involvement, just put it very bluntly, would make matters better or worse. Well, let's let's end the roundup today on some good news, at least for some people. In the UK, dozens of companies are sticking to a four-day work week after the success of a recent pilot program. The program included nearly 3,000 workers from 61 companies, and it ran from June to December last year. Joe O'Connor is a researcher and the developer of the four-day work week program. He joined PBS NewsHour on Sunday. Before the pandemic, it wasn't acceptable in society or in business this idea that you could run a global company from your kitchen table, this idea that you could be as productive at home as you could be in the office. And it took a big game changer like the pandemic to dislodge a lot of these cultural and societal norms. I believe the same is true with the shorter working week. This has opened the eyes of leaders and of managers that there are different ways of working that are possible. Now, Emily, this program included workers from all types of industries. They were nonprofits, finance firms, food service workers, how did workers respond to the experience? Um, positively, no. I think I think, and, and we shouldn't just say that they were happier. I think there's also evidence that suggests that they're more productive, um, and that it they're more productive, and the company's productivity or NGO's productivity or whatever have you productivity didn't take a hit. I think that you know, for many decades now, uh, we have had the idea that physically being in a space or physically putting or putting in a certain number of hours or you know having your coat on the back of the door for a certain amount of time that that's how you demonstrate that you're getting work done. Um, and what we've seen over the pandemic and what was demonstrated through this this experiment, uh, if you will, is that that's just not that's not true. Well, Nancy, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders tweeted that it's time for the U.S. to adopt a four day work week. Any any thoughts of that becoming a reality in this country? I, I, I think it's possible because what the other thing we've seen post pandemic is the great resignation and people really reassessing how they do work life balance. And so I think as we've seen employees respond and say that they want to see change and see adjustments and see flexibilities, it's possible. I think we should keep in mind that this is not an option open for all people. Mm. This is of a, a one that depends on uh, the benefits of technology. It, it's not for um, th- those who are working in fact those who are working um, um, in more blue-collar jobs. And so it's a luxury for some to even have the conversation. And I think um, it's part of a, a broader discussion about how we work in America and how we balance uh, our work time and our personal time.
Huge thanks to today's guests, Nancy Youssef, national security reporter for The Wall Street Journal, Emily Tampkin, a freelance journalist and author of Bad Jews, A History of American Jewish Politics and Identities. And earlier we heard from the editor of Semaphore Africa, Yinka Adegoke, and from the BBC's Ukraine correspondent, James Waterhouse. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Kellen Quickly ran our board for this news roundup with help from Kennedy Wright. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior supervising producer. Aileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand with help from Matthew Simonson. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.